0: There are problems with telling people to reduce their meat consumption in those contexts where they are not even eating enough to meet their nutritional needs. And even here in the U.S., there are issues with telling everyone to reduce their meat consumption. Obviously, moderation is very important. We also have to work against some of the negative messaging because You know, people in Africa and Asia, they use social media just as us, So they get the same messages. I have family members uh, in Africa who are saying they're avoiding meat for some of the reasons like the climate and so on. What they don't realize is that there are many, many strategies that have been developed to reduce emissions from livestock. And that's something that even here in this country, very few people know about.
1: It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Today, we're going to discuss how we feed the future of a planet that's hungry and deal with all the issues that we're facing. We're happy to have the director of the Future Innovation Lab. Bola Adejuan. Bola, welcome to Farm to Table Talk.
0: Thank you so much, Roger. It's an honor to be here. Thank you.
1: Well, you know, you've been here before. We had a conversation a few years ago, and I was so impressed with that conversation. And we did do a podcast, so people can go back into the archives and see the conversation that we had Uh, one other time. Uh, But I think the best place to start, we've got so much ground I want to cover today. But the best place to start might be what, what is the Feed the Future Innovation Lab?
0: Thank you, Roger. Um, Feed the Future is the US government's global initiative to combat food uh, insecurity and poverty. And it was initiated in 2009 by the Obama administration in response to the global food crisis. So that's Feed the Future. And currently it's an across the government initiative that involves several different agencies, uh, USAID, DOD, USDA, and so on. Um, The innovation labs are specific projects Uh, funded by USAID that involved partnerships between US universities and developing country researchers uh, and they work together to solve pressing problems uh, in the food security space. So our innovation lab for livestock systems is the comprehensive one that focuses on addressing Problems with livestock production, livestock health, and consumption of animal source foods, ranging from food safety issues to um, taboos asso- associated with food consumption, gender um, inequalities uh, with respect to livestock uh, raising and consumption of animal source foods, and so on.
1: So, do you cover the entire world?
0: Well, good question. We have a global mandate, but we focus, you know, of course, the the resources are limited. We are funded by USAID and the Gates Foundation. So we currently work in eight countries, uh, six in Africa and um, two in Asia. And we are planning to add a ninth or seventh African country in the next week or two.
1: Could you tell me who those are, what countries?
0: Absolutely. So we work in Nepal and in Cambodia, in South Asia, and in Africa. We work in Uganda, in Kenya, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Burkina Faso, that's in West Africa, and Niger. And then the seventh country that we're about to add is Nigeria. We'll start working there hopefully in September this month.
1: Now where does where does animal agriculture production fit in those countries? What's the current status of even of producing animals for food?
0: Well, in all of these countries, um, you know, here in the US livestock generally have a bad press for several reasons. But in these countries, livestock are highly valued for several different reasons. Um, Number one, they're a source of income, obviously, and that's very important. In some of these countries, livestock production accounts for uh, 40% of the GDP. Um, In some of these countries, 80% of the workforce own animals and derive some form of income from animals. In some of these places, livestock are seen as a status symbol. And um, the more livestock people have, the wealthier they are, the higher the social standing they have. Um, More importantly, livestock can be a means for women who are often disadvantaged in many of these uh, communities to own resources and to be able to derive an income and um, make decisions with regard to funding their children's education and so on and so forth. And in addition to to, to all this, the livestock manure is a very vital source of nutrients for plants. Um, Livestock manure is also used in some cases for building, as a building material, and in in many cases, is burned for fuel, for cooking. Uh, So there are a whole range of different reasons why livestock are important. And in fact, um, there are several studies showing that people are more resilient, more able to face shocks, whether it's drought, or the recent invasions of low costs, and so on. They're more able to survive those when they own livestock. Um, so livestock are seen as very, very important, and vital to life in, in many of these countries.
1: When we talk about livestock, I assume, cattle, and dairy cattle as well, and chickens, and pigs, and goats. Um,
0: Yes, all of of those. In some cases, in a few cases, you would also have guinea fowl. And in a few, you'd have rabbits as well. But yes, all of those species you mentioned.
1: Now, does large scale agriculture exist there? Here we have confined you know, feeding operations in many areas of the United States, especially with, well, with pork and cattle and, and chickens as well. Do those exist in the countries that you're working in?
0: They exist, but they account for a relatively small percentage of the uh, livestock production in the countries. So there are commercial farms, there are, um, and in many of these countries, a farm with 30, you know, 50 head. Uh, of, of cattle would be a big one, but there are some with up to 500, 1,000, even more, but they're, they're not common. Um, so there are big farms uh, and then that use modern equipment and uh, facilities like you would find here, but that is um, the exception rather than the norm. What is more typical would be small to medium-sized producers, who have anything from two to say 10 um, uh, uh, livestock units. Uh, Many of them may only have a few in the backyard. That's the smallholder systems, extensive systems are much more common.
1: Now, I've heard before that there's hundreds of millions of people that are existing on dollars a day equivalent. Um, when the, when we hear of numbers like that, would that include an income for the livestock? Or is that usually that they've got some source of income and then plus, in the these small holdings, they they're able to have whatever they can produce from their livestock in addition to that?
0: okay, I'm not 100% sure about this. But my sense is that that $2 a day figure is their total income from all sources. Mm-hmm. So it's it's difficult for us to, to understand. And actually, I also wear another hat. I'm director of the Food Systems Institute at the University of Florida. And one of the things we're doing this fall is to try and help people to understand what it must be like to live on $2 a day or $4 a day, which would be poverty here in the U.S., and so we have an event um, in October where we're asking people to try and live on $2 a day or $4 a day and then to record and relay their experiences.
1: So if if we go, you know, look at the countries that you're working in right now, is it your goal to show them how they might be able to increase their income and perhaps improve their nutrition by actually producing and consuming more livestock?
0: Yeah, this is a good question. I would put it this way. Our goal is to jointly learn how we can improve um, the productivity of the systems of livestock production in those countries, the preservation, the marketing, um, the sales of livestock products, and the nutrition aspect. Um, Our vision in the Livestock Lab is to sustainably intensify livestock production in order to improve the nutrition, the health, the incomes, and the livelihoods of the poor. Having said that, we see it as very much a win-win. We don't go in with the attitude that we know it all and we're coming to teach you what to do. We go in looking for partners who understand the problems, who understand what has been attempted, what has worked, what has failed. And then we jointly design research programs and jointly implement the research programs. And so we have a lot of buy-in from researchers, private sector, the governments, and um, we are very grateful to have a number of success stories, but there are payoffs for working abroad to us here in the U.S. as well. Um, And I I can give a number of examples, but there are diseases that could come to the U.S. that we're curtailing abroad. Um, Viral disease, you know, one we work with, one we work on in Kenya and Uganda is a viral disease of sheep and goats that spread from a small country in West Africa. That was where it was first developed in the 1940s. Now it's spread, it's endemic across Africa, the Middle East, Asia. Thankfully, it's not here yet. And we have a project that's looking at a thermostable vaccine to control the spread of this disease. And the the beauty of the thermostable vaccine is you don't need refrigeration or cold chain. Um, And that limits penetration of drugs to uh, the interior, the rural areas, which makes it possible for the virus to survive in refuge areas. Now with a thermostable vaccine, you don't need that cold chain. Someone can put it on the back of a motorcycle and it can last for several weeks and maintain its integrity. Uh, so that's just one example of how what we do in those countries also has payoffs for us here. And I can share many more examples if
1: if we want to. I want to circle back in a minute and talk about how these animals are going to be produced or being produced currently and what it might look like if you get more animals produced. But let's skip ahead to nutrition, because the the public in those those areas have um, nutritional challenges, uh, from what I understand. Could you... Could you kind of explain that? Because ultimately, that's what we're going to be using food for too, is to try to deal with not only just hunger, but uh, but health in a broader sense.
0: Yeah, very great question. Thank you. So most people are familiar and and, and knowledgeable about hunger. And but the the more hidden um, problem is hidden hunger. And hidden hunger is caused by a deficiency of important micronutrients. Uh, micronutrients that are important for uh, kids to thrive, to grow properly, and more importantly for their brains to develop properly. Um, these micronutrients are particularly critical during the first thousand days of life when brain development, cause brain development is about 90% complete by the end of that thousand days. And those micronutrients are very important for formation of the brain, for cognition, for establishment of different um, critical parts of the architecture needed for cognition. So when they are lacking in that first thousand days, particularly, the brain is not well formed. Cognitive impairment results and, in many cases, this is a lifelong problem that is irreversible. It's also intergenerational. So if someone has this problem and the, the term that's usually used to describe it is taunting and it's taunting not just of physical growth, but also of cognitive growth. And so unfortunately, kids who are stunted um, fail to do well in school, fail to um, thrive, Um, And because they don't do well in school, in many of these countries, if you don't do well in school, your chances of getting a good job and being a net contributor to society are greatly diminished. And consequently, these folks, uh, their ability to earn a good wage and support others as adults is reduced. And the researchers from the World Bank who have done some calculations, and they estimate that on average in Africa and Asia, the gross domestic products of countries where the workforce is mainly made up of stunted people has been reduced by about 10% on average, and up to 16% in some cases.
1: So what's causing that uh, with these these nutritional issues? Is it? Uh, and I get back to animal, uh, animal source foods, and in, in particular, is is there evidence or proof that the the lack of having animal source foods in in those diets, especially in those first critical 1000 days? are is that the reason that the that the problem is as serious as it is?
0: Yeah, so let me first put things in proper context, because stunting is not entirely a nutritional problem. It's caused by many different factors, including poor sanitation, um, lack of hygiene, um, lack of knowledge and low literacy, or particularly of of the the mother, um, and uh, whether or not the um, mother herself was stunted. So there are all these other factors But one of the main causes is malnutrition. And the reason why animal source foods are important is because they contain the nutrients that are critical for this brain development. And plants often, many plants also contain the nutrients. But the plants lack either the bioavailability or um, the digestibility. the nutrient density. So if we think about iron, for instance, spinach is a great source of iron. Um, iron is one of the most deficient micronutrients worldwide. It's very important for cognition. Um, I think estimates indicate that you know a third of women globally are deficient in iron. Now, like I said, spinach is a great source but a woman of reproductive age would have to eat about three times as much meat in the form of spinach to meet her iron needs. And if we're comparing it to liver, it would be about six times as much. And that's because meat and liver have concentrated sources of iron, but it's not just that. The form In animal source foods, it's much more bioavailable. And that bioavailability is really critical because that rapidly growing infant brain needs a very readily available source of nutrients. In plants, plants that have the nutrients, they are often bound up in other compounds like phytate. And that prevents, even if you have a high concentration, the availability is not there. Um, And this is why it's important. Some of the micronutrients are are completely lacking, like vitamin B12 um, is another very important one. And that one you can't get, in a form humans can can assimilate from plants. So the World Health Organization has said that animal source foods are the best form of foods for nutrients in this stage after the breastfeeding period, after the first six months. Um, because not just the quantity of micronutrients, but the bioavailability. And the other thing to mention is the protein quality. We often think about protein, but we often only limit our thinking to the quantity of protein. The quantity is not as important as the quality because the quality is based on the amino acid makeup. And it is amino acids that are the building blocks of growth, and muscle development and so on. And when you lack essential amino acids like lysine, the total concentration of protein is less important. So animal source foods have the highest quality protein and um, they're also nutrient dense and have the bioavailability. And this is why they're important. The last thing I would say is that in the countries where we work and in much, of the the low and middle income countries, when you go to the rural areas, the diets are mainly based on carbohydrate, starch-rich foods. These could be yams, potatoes, cassava, rice, pasta, um, in some cases with uh, vegetables, but even then, based on what I just described about plant sources of nutrients, the diets are not sufficient to meet the nutrient needs of the infants, um, and there is no option to get the critically needed supplements in the rural areas. They are inaccessible. These supplements, like what we would get in Walgreens or CVS, would be inaccessible or unaffordable in the rural areas.
1: Let me ask a related question then, because I I know many vegetarians, uh, vegans, people that are raising very healthy families uh, without animal products, Um, and I, I I've got a guess on why that might be the case, but I'm going to let you to help me answer that because some people are thinking that, and they think, well, I know of cases where um children have been raised in a in a household that never had animal products and they turned out very well and they're smart kids and 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 seem to be healthy why is that the case uh, and and why can't that be the case in africa and some of the these countries that you're mentioning
0: yeah good question this morning i had a was Uh, one of my students um, took one of my exams and wrote down in the exams that animal source foods are essential for mental development. And I kind of corrected the person and said, um, there's a difference between saying they're essential and saying that they play a really vital role. The benefit, the advantage we have here is that um, because we have uh, affordable resources um, that we can get from our grocery stores or pharmacies, you can get the nutrients that you don't you wouldn't normally get from plants from these sources. And so someone can be a vegan, someone can be a vegetarian and meet their nutrient requirements by being very careful and purposeful making sure that they're getting the B12 um, from uh, a pharmacy or something like that, Um, making sure that they are combining different plant sources to ensure that their diets are enriched with the right vitamins and minerals. In the countries where we work, people don't have that luxury. They don't have, um, you may not have a physician or 200 miles, let alone have a drugstore or, or, or a hospital. Um, so these folks, unfortunately, have to cope with what they have. The good thing is that many of them raise animals, they raise livestock. The problem is, most of them raise the livestock for cash and they sell the livestock as a means of income status. Uh, or uh, means of income, particularly when times are hard or when there's a particularly need, particular need, most of them, I dare say, most of them do not realize how vitally important it is um, for them to feed some livestock products to their children. And, uh, you know, I've also heard about, even here in the West, about kids who are um, being raised in a vegan way, whose parents are told by their physician because the child has some health issues, feed that child some eggs or give that child some milk or something because the the physician understands how important those are as a source of nutrients. So in these countries, um, it's, it's, it's a problem in the sense that they have what will solve the problem of their children's malnutrition, but they don't realize it. And one of, uh, a high government official in one of our countries, I won't mention her name. And she said, Bola, I give you permission to frighten people. And I'm six foot six or something like that. And uh, so she wasn't talking about frightening in that sense. She was talking about what it will take to help them realize that they are doing a terrible disservice to their children if they prioritize other things um, and ignore or disregard the nutrition of their children. And she gave an example. She said, many of the poor women in villages will scrimp and save enough money to buy a new uniform for their kid at the beginning of the school year but she said that, and these are her words, not mine, she said that child is going to school with an empty brain. And so these would be people who would sell eggs, um, sell you know their goats and so on, and use all the income to you know, make the child look good, which what she was saying is it's so much more important to ensure that they feed that child properly with some of those animal products. So that the brain development is optimal.
1: I wonder, in those cases, say if uh, a woman is raising a family maybe by herself, could could she not have a few chickens to be able to give a, a child an egg uh, in in the morning or a goat? To milk and have 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 milk, you know. Let alone look at the at the meat products that might ultimately come when they actually, uh, you know, slaughter a chicken or or a goat. But it would it would seem for those really small holdings where someone's trying to support her family by herself like that, that adding a couple chickens and a goat would would go a long ways towards addressing this problem.
0: I couldn't agree more, and this is why we do what we do. I'll give one example. In Burkina Faso, um, I was there twice in the last, I think, last two months. And we've been working there for about four years now. We had a project that set out to do exactly what you're saying. In many parts of the country, you know, poultry consumption is really cherished. Um, and but the eggs from the poultry are usually sold for income, and they're not fed to children. And there are all kinds of taboos in, in all over the world about consumption of animal source foods. In that country, in particular, in some areas, they would say eggs are uh, would teach children to steal. If you, you know, you give a child an egg, that child will become a thief. Just because the child would value it so much that the child would, you know, get a propensity to to steal the eggs and maybe other things. So they generally don't give eggs to children in the rural areas. And what we did in this project was we enlisted the help of some village elders and gave them um, three chickens, three hens, and asked them to give them to a poor family with infants on the condition that, those families will feed an egg a day to their infants under the age of two. And we had this full intervention arm where we had the gifting of the chickens, plus providing training in human nutrition, the importance of eggs in the diet, and then also on poultry uh, raising, poultry husbandry. And then we had a partial intervention with just the husbandry training and the nutrition training. And we had a control arm with no training and no intervention. Well, after a few months, the women who were in the full intervention group said they saw a change in their children. They said they were brighter, more active. They were more energetic. And so some of these women said to us that although their husbands were complaining that they should start selling the eggs, they insisted on continuing to feed the eggs to their kids. And by the end of 10 months, the women in the control group and their children, um, there was no improvement in egg consumption. Those in the partial intervention were eating about two and a half eggs on average a week. Those in the full intervention were eating six eggs a week. And those, What was very striking was that some of the measures of nutritional adequacy were different among those groups. Those in the full intervention, wasting, which is uh, wasting and underweight, were severely greater in the control group, and these were reduced by those among those who got, uh, who ate the eggs uh, regularly in the full intervention. The women also reported feeling much more empowered um, because And in fact, some of them went to buy additional chickens when they saw the benefits um, in terms of their children's well-being, health, uh, and so on and so forth. So what you are proposing there is exactly, you know, this. we, we manage about 50 projects, and this, this one was on the behavior change to improve nutrition. And we also do a lot on the animal production, uh, animal health, uh, marketing, and so on. Uh, as well,
1: you know, people such as Alan Savory, Alan Savory in particular, has looked a lot at the savannas of Africa and have commented that there's the potential for considerably more uh, grazing that um, is is going to be uh, regenerative too. And I'm wondering whether there's also the potential for several people to come together, or form cooperatives, and so forth, to have larger herds of goats and sheep and cattle to, um, to, to really graze the pasture land that's allowed to develop to the extent that it could.
0: Yeah, so the two needs here, one of the big needs is a proper understanding of grazing management. Because if you allow animals to graze, and they graze the growing tip of a grass, they're going to kill it. And I've been to, I was invited to Jordan once, and I was taken to a place which to me looked like a, a beach. Um, and, and it was because all the topsoil was gone. And they said, Bola, 20 years ago, this was a lush green area. And what happened was that the grass here was overgrazed. We lost the topsoil and we're left with this bare, um, bare sand. And this is what can happen with uncontrolled grazing. So grazing management, but there are people, um, agronomists, who have uh, a very clear handle on how to manage grazing, whether for continually stocked pastures or rotationally grazed pastures. So that's going to be very critical. The second thing is also to think about animal numbers. In many parts of Africa and Asia at the moment, people still think more is better. And that's not really the way we should be going. We should be thinking about how can we produce more with less? How can we reduce the numbers of animals so that we have less adverse environmental impacts, but we're still producing the same amount of meat? How can we reduce um, increase productivity um, without in an environmentally friendly way? And that's one of the things that we do. So we have been working on strategies to balance, formulate balanced rations that meet the nutrient needs of animals and optimize their growth, to reduce waste, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and optimize the growth of the animals. Um, so that's just one example, but uh, and and African governments are, be, are realizing this more and more that they have to move away from a focus on, we have so many animals, to looking at what is the productivity of the animals. And, and this is one of the areas where we can come alongside our friends and our partners and jointly develop strategies because you can't necessarily export something from the U.S. Um, to these countries. We have to think about the local context and what will work, and not just what will work during a short-term period, but what is sustainable for the long term. And that may need adaptations of the technology, you might need local sourcing of some of the resources, and that's what we do with our partners in the countries, and that's what allows us to provide sustainable interventions that make a difference.
1: Well, and if you can get that improvement if you're producing more with less, then it also you're addressing climate change as well because the the normal criticisms that come up about broadly about say cattle in particular and greenhouse gases it depends how efficient the cattle are.
0: Yes, yes, especially when we look at the greenhouse gas emissions per unit of animal product. When you look at that metric, then um, the livestock production systems in the developing world are much more polluted because the animal systems are less productive. Uh, Whereas here in the US um, and and in the West in general, um, the growth rates and productivity of our animals are uh, much, much higher So, you know, um, if we look at a cow in the U.S., one cow in the U.S. would produce as much meat, milk, as it will take probably 10 cows from India to produce that much milk, and you might need 20-something cows from Africa. Well, the methane production from the U.S., single U.S. cow is greater than that from the Indian cow or the Nigerian cow. But when you put together the number of cows that will be required to produce as much milk as that single U.S. cow, and you add together all the methane production amounts from those cows, that's gonna be far greater than from the U.S. cow. So the bottom line is we need to sustainably intensify. That's what's happened in this country. That's what's happened in Europe. That's what needs to happen in um, uh, different parts of uh, Asia and Africa. Um, I'm not saying we export everything we do here. There are things that um, we need to learn what has worked well here, what is sustainable, and export those practices, adapt them to the local context. There are things to learn from those systems in the developing world there as well, and even bring
1: back home. Well, if you look down the road, how did you- how do you hope when we do this again, say five years from now, we have another podcast, what progress do you hope will have been made? What, what? Uh, how would you like to see it change from efforts such as, as your programs and others uh, to make progress and make, you know, five years from now look different than it does today? What would that look like?
0: Okay, thank you, Roger. So at the moment, the levels of stunting in many African countries, you know, is somewhere around 30%. So one in three children is stunted. Um, The governments have done a lot to reduce those numbers over the years, but it's still too high. Um, And in some parts of some countries, you can have regions with stunting rates as high as 60%. So in another five years, I would hope for a drastic reduction in the stunting levels in each country. Um, And this will take uh, a lot of concerted work by different uh, sectors of the society that need to work together, the government, the private sector, academia, and so on. And I would argue that this is one of the greatest problems that we face in these countries. And it's something that affects not just, affects the next generation, And so I think it's a priority. So I think there is a need to prioritize uh, enactment of policies that focus on proper nutrition of children, on proper sustainable uh, intensification of agriculture, and particularly livestock production, on getting, on countering some of the the messaging that comes from certain Western Uh, countries that suggest or that demonize all consumption of livestock products. I think that's very dangerous because if we consider, for instance, how much meat is consumed in the U.S. or Argentina, Australia, compared to many of the African countries where we work, it's orders of magnitude greater. There are problems with telling people to reduce their meat consumption in those contexts where they are not even eating enough to meet their nutritional needs. And even here in the US, there are issues with um, telling everyone to reduce their meat consumption. Obviously, moderation is very important. Uh, so we also have to work against some of the negative messaging because you know, people in Africa and Asia, they use social media just as us, so they get the same messages. And um, I have family members uh, in Africa who are saying they're avoiding meat uh, for some of the reasons like the climate and so on. What they don't realize is that there are many, many strategies that have been developed to reduce emissions from livestock. And that's something that even here in this country, very few people know about. Um, Animal scientists have been working on this for the last 20, 30 years. And there are many strategies One of the last is certain seaweed that can reduce emissions by 80%. So, um, and some of our producers are already adopting some of those techniques. The, The other thing that I think is critical to mention here is that often we don't give due credit to livestock products. We tend to think about total emissions from livestock. If we looked at emissions per unit of nutrient density or protein quality, livestock products emit far less than many of the other plant-based foods that we consume. Um, and, And last thing I'll mention is there was a study done by some of my colleagues that looked at what would happen if we got rid of all the livestock in the US, for instance. And what they found is there will be a very small, about 2.6% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. But nutrient deficiencies that we only read about in the history books would become so prevalent. So um, it's, it's important for us here to understand and appreciate the importance of livestock uh, in livelihoods and, and in diets here but also, and maybe even more so important uh, in the developing world. And it's important that we don't give people the wrong impression about consumption of this much needed source of nutrients.
1: That's such wise counsel. I really appreciate your joining us today and talking about this. And there's so much more to cover, and I hope we'll do it again in another podcast. If people that have listened to us today would like to get more information uh, about the, uh, about your, your program and some of the things we've, we've talked about today, where would you suggest that they look to find more information?
0: So if you go online to livestocklab.ifas, ifas is I-F-A-S dot U-F-L dot E-D-U, that's dot ifas dot u f l dot edu that's our website and you can contact us you can learn about our 50 or so projects in the eight countries um and we'll be happy to engage you to discuss some more
1: well i really appreciate your the work that you're doing and i really want to thank you for being on farm to table talk today
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Roger. It's an honor, and I really enjoyed it.
1: You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or go to iTunes to subscribe and give us a review and a rating. Thanks for listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.